Welcome to the Truth Wars podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We wanted to let you know that Olin's first book, What to Do with Worry, is now available on Audible. You can also purchase physical copies where Christian books are sold. Now, here's Olin. Genesis chapter 2, verse 20, and let me pray for us while you turn there. Father God, we thank you for all of your good gifts. We thank you most of all for Christ. Lord, but we thank you also for the gift of marriage, uh, for romance, for friendship, for fellowship. And Lord, we want to do dating and marriage in the wisest way, in the best way, in the safest way, in the most God-honoring and pleasing way. And Lord, also in the ways that would bring us the most joy and happiness in life. And so I pray, Lord, for the next few minutes together that you would protect us from the evil one. Lord, any wrong, maybe assumptions Uh, that we bring into this, that you would tear those things down. I pray that you would protect us from distractions, anything that might pop up on our phone or just a thought in our mind or noises out in the hall. Lord, help us to be all here, to be focused. Would you be speaking powerfully to us from your word to change us, to grow us up, to make us into the men and the women you want us to be? We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, Genesis chapter 2, verse 20. And... uh, The Bible never uses the word dating. So here's going to just be my kind of simple bottom line definition. What do I mean by dating? You may mean something different, but for the next 50 minutes, here's what we mean by dating. It's the process that a single person goes through to find and marry a spouse. And guys, there may be better forms of dating and worse forms of dating. There can be arranged marriages. There can just be random shack ups and hook ups and then just choose somebody. But... I'm saying it's all a type of dating. The Bible never specifically talks about dating, but there are biblical principles that give us wisdom about how we can do dating in the best way. And that's what we're going to look at. So Genesis chapter two shows us the first marriage. It was the only marriage that was perfect. It didn't stay perfect, but it started out perfect. And there's a lot that we can learn here. So the first point is this, there's a plan for marriage. And so we need to trust God with his plan. God's the one that invented marriage. Human beings didn't invent marriage. The Supreme Court didn't invent marriage. God invented marriage in the very beginning. Okay, this is before sin had entered the world. Genesis chapter 2, look at verse 20. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So when God first made planet Earth and there's animals and trees, at first he just made man. But then God was like, this is not where I want man to stay. I don't want man to be alone. I don't want man to not have a best friend. Man had a God, man had animals, man had food to eat, he had a lot. But God said, I want him to have a best friend. I want him to have somebody else like him, but not exactly like him, different in all sorts of exciting ways they could do life together. Okay, so we need to trust God with his plan. Second thing I'd say, there's a priority before marriage. Before even getting to talking about marriage and dating, we need to understand the priority before that, and that's God. God is the greatest priority in life, and so we need to love him above all things, even above the opposite sex, even above your wife or your husband once you get married. Look at verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man, and he brought her to the man. Here's the point I want to make here. Both Adam and Eve 
had some sort of a relationship with God before they ever had a relationship with one another. Do you see that? Adam was made. Eve's not even made yet. So God and Adam are like hanging out and naming the animals. And then when Eve got made, Adam was over there taking a nap. He's knocked out of sleep. Just been through surgery. So when Eve first comes into being, she has a relationship with God. And guys, this is the way that it should be for us as well. You should prioritize your personal, intimate relationship with Father God far above any other human relationships, even your best friend, even your boyfriend or girlfriend, even above your wife. And so just one real practical thing. I'm going to try to give you some practical applications. Once you do start dating and you found that person, how do you keep it a God-centered relationship? One of the best things you can do is just make sure that you're spending time with God every day on your own reading the Bible, praying, worshiping Him, interacting with Him, and you don't start neglecting your personal time alone with the Lord because you're so in love with this new boyfriend or girlfriend and you're trying to spend all the time with them. That's a bad sign if you're doing that. It'll get you into trouble. Okay. Point three, patience for marriage. Wait on Him. I don't know if you noticed in the little passage we read. It does not say that God... And Adam are standing around naming all the animals. And Adam started to get impatient and frustrated. He's like, this is not fair. Mr. Bear has a Mrs. Bear. Mr. Porcupine has a Mrs. Porcupine. Where's my Mrs.? He never complained. He never got worried. He never got frustrated. He trusted God. God was the one that looked down and said, Adam's in paradise. Look, there's no sin. There's no sickness. There's no suffering. There's no pain. He rules the whole creation. Everything submits to him. He's got a perfect relationship with me. He can have a 24-hour-a-day worship service. He can hear my voice. We we interact. But God said, this is still not best. It's not good enough. I want Adam to have a best friend to do life with. Because God made us as relational beings. God is looking out for you. God cares for you. God cares about your dating life and your future potential marriage more than you care about it yourself. He really does. That's how much he loves you. And so you've got to trust him. And so much of that means patience, not rushing it. I'm not saying wait forever. But God, God, God controls the whole universe. I grew up in Georgia and my plan was to go in the Navy. I was working my hardest to try to get into the Naval Academy. My wife grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, and she had gotten a full ride to go to this pretty nice private school. And pretty late in the game, both of us, when we were seniors in high school, didn't know anything about each other. I decided to throw all the Navy stuff in the trash and go to this school I'd never heard of until a few months ago called Sanford University in Birmingham, Alabama. And my wife, unbeknownst to me, all right, all the Sanford peeps back there. Memphis, Tennessee, brand new baby Christian, And where she got in a full ride was a very uh, godless school, and she did not think it was going to help her grow. Same thing. She threw it all in the trash to go to a school she'd never heard of until a few months ago called Sanford University. We couldn't have planned that. That's where we met. That's where we fell in love. We ended up getting married after that. Why do I tell that story? Just say, guys, God knows you. He knows where you are. He knows your path. He knows the path of your spouse. He can guide you to bring you together at the right time in the best way. Okay, now, my wife and I, we first kind of started dating when I was a sophomore. I was 20 years old. And I asked her on a date. We've been hanging out. We were friends. We're going to go on a date. And so I asked her, hey, let's go out. She says, yes. I'm all excited. And literally, I had this experience. It doesn't happen to me very often. It does happen sometimes where it's like, God put a thought in my brain that I know I didn't put there. And here was the thought. 
you're not mature enough to be in a serious, committed relationship yet. And I was thinking, dang it, because my wife, she's a couple years older than I am. She's already a senior. You know, she was pretty popular. There was a line of guys that wanted to date her. And so, but we go on this first date. It's great. It's fun. But at the end of the night, I'm dropping her off. I'm like, hey, this is kind of weird and awkward. But uh, I really just don't think I'm in a place that I need to be in any kind of serious relationship. And she's, my wife is pretty direct. I like that about her. She said, well, then what are we doing? I said, you're right. I'm going to back off. I'm going to give you space. And again, like I said, before long, there were other guys talking to her. I didn't like it. I'd walk through the food court. I'd see them talking to her. I wanted to put my fist either through their face or through the mailbox or something. I'd go back to my room. I'd get out my Bible. I'd try to read and think about God, Bible, Jesus. All I could think about was Lena, Lena, Lena. Drove me crazy. But here's part of what I did, guys. I started meditating on Romans 8, 28, one of the most famous verses in the Bible. God works all things together for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And so I would pray about my dating situation and I would think about Romans 8, 28 and I would meditate on it and chew on it mentally and try to think, what does this have to say to me personally in this situation? And here's what finally dawned on me. I was pretty convinced. I don't have the gift of singleness. I don't think that's what God's calling me to for all sorts of reasons. And up until this point in my life, 20 years, she seems to be the greatest girl for me I've ever met. I think she's the one. But I had to be. I was objective enough to know, but I haven't met every single woman on planet earth maybe there's somebody out there better and so as i meditated on god's gonna work all things together for my good what does that mean it either means god's gonna bring me somebody better than lena one day because that was pretty exciting she was pretty amazing or he's gonna bring her back around one day and guys that's what he did it took a couple of years but here's the point meditating on that truth gave me the patience to say i'm gonna back off I'm going to trust you. We actually started to kind of hang out again the next year. And then she's like, I feel like I need a break from boys. I'm like, great. Just what I wanted to hear. We backed off. But by the third time, we both kind of felt like the Lord was saying it's time to move forward. We had some good counsel. We got married. Guys, be patient. Don't rush it. The second biggest decision that you will ever make in your life if you get married is who you marry. First biggest decision, what do you do with Jesus Christ? How do you respond to him? But the second biggest, most consequential decision for good or bad is who you choose to marry. And maybe when I came to my first New Year's conference almost 30 years ago now, I remember somebody said this, a great marriage is like a little piece of heaven on earth. And it really is. And a bad marriage is like a little taste of hell on earth. You don't want to do it. Be wise, be patient, trust the Lord, trust his time, trust his ways. Guys, here's some more practical application for you. Don't get into a serious, committed, exclusive, we're just dating other people, we don't date other people relationship until you're realistically at a point where you could get married soon. What if you're a freshman and you meet that girl here and you fall in love, but you're on the six-year plan. You're nowhere close to being graduated and have a job. What do you think the next six years are going to be? Torture. And probably a lot of sin and a lot of heartache and a lot of pain. I'm not saying don't go to parties, don't have dates, but don't get into that exclusive thing. It's just dangerous until you're really ready to do anything with it. And what so many of us do, guys, and, and sadly, we start doing this sometimes in middle school, certainly by high school for a lot of us, is what we have is we have a lot of mini marriages, miniature marriages. We act like we're married already, sometimes in every way, except maybe not living together. Maybe we're not sleeping together, maybe doing everything else. 
And then at some point, you break up. And what it feels like is a miniature divorce. And then you maybe go off to college. And maybe you do actually shack up with somebody. And it's almost totally like a marriage. And maybe you stay together for a year or two. And then when you break up, it feels like a legitimate divorce. You see what you're doing? You're training yourself. When the relationship gets hard, I'm bailing out. I've got a guy that I know that he's in pilot school. And he's going to go in the Air Force. He's going to become a pilot. And he's getting to the point now where he can actually take off and fly and doing all this. What if when he was doing all his training missions, every time they took him up in a plane, they let him take off. They let him fly around, turn left, turn right, maybe do a spin move or whatever. But the way every training mission ended was put on your parachute and jump out the back door. You think that's going to make him a great pilot? It's like you need to learn how to land the plane. And sometimes bailing out is like the last ditch option. It's worst case scenario. You should almost never parachute out. But if you've had all these experiences where every time the relationship gets hard, you just bail out, you do a miniature divorce, you're training yourself. You're preparing yourself to get divorced later in life, guys. So this is an important point. Please be patient until you're really mature enough. Part of what it means to really prioritize your walk with God before your dating relationship is this. Before you start looking for the right person, try to make sure you're becoming the right person. I mean, Brian said it this morning. We can't really control other people. So don't start trying to date somebody and change them. Don't try to do missionary dating. Spend your time and energy trying to grow up and mature and become a godly person that will attract the right kind of people. That's where most of your time and energy needs to go while you're in this waiting game. The fourth point, passion in marriage. Okay, so go back to the text. Adam woke up. God brings Eve to Adam. Verse 23, this is the first recorded words that a human being ever spoke. The man said... This is verse 23. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now listen, that's either a song or that's a poem. We don't know. And you may be some big tough football guy in here and you're like, man, I don't write poetry. If you've been hanging out with dolphins and monkeys and that's the coolest thing you've ever seen. And God said, hey, Adam, take a nap, buddy. And when you wake up, I got a really big surprise. And you woke up and God said, here's a naked woman I want you to meet. You'd have been writing poetry too, buddy. Here's the point. Physical attraction is a good thing. It's a right thing. It's not a bad thing. God invented it. Now, so much of the secular, non-Christian world, the culture that we swim in, they have made physical attraction everything. The most important thing. I was, re- I was sitting in a doctor's office one time and had a magazine. So it was the only thing there to read. I'm reading some article about some actor and they asked him this famous guy if I said his name. You, you'd know his name, but I don't want to embarrass him. And they said, what do you look for in a woman? He's like, the two H's. Humor and hot. She's got to be hot and got a good sense of humor. It's like, no wonder everybody in L.A. is divorced. Because those are stupid standards. That's it? She's got to be good looking and have a good sense of humor? She could be crazy. I know crazy people that are really attractive and have a good sense of humor. And so the secular non-Christian world way overemphasizes physical attraction. And sometimes in an overreaction to that, what the Christian world does is we try to say physical attraction doesn't matter at all. All that matters is does she want to be a missionary, yes or no? And guys, that's just a lie. 
God invented physical attraction. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's just not the best thing. It's just not the most important thing. So when you're looking for a spouse, the number one priority ought to be, are they godly? Do they love Jesus? Are they maturing and growing in their spiritual relationship? Do they repent of their sin? That'll be a big one. You may not care now. Wait until their sin is against you. You really want them to be a good repenter. And then the second thing ought to be, are they just your best friend? Are they just the person that you like hanging out with? Are they the person you're like, man, I feel like I never get sick of this person. They're just fun. We get along. It's easy. Now listen, if you really say, my number one priority is godliness. My number one, my number two priority is best friendship. Number three can be almost anything you want. So if you're like, I really like girls with blonde hair. Great, go for it. Try to find a blonde haired godly woman. But if you put blonde hair over godliness, do you realize how insane that is? You could marry a blonde haired demon worshiper. It ain't going to work out well. If ladies, if you're like, but I really do like a funny guy. I want a guy that makes me laugh. Awesome. That's wonderful. As long as godliness and best friendship is first. Okay, so don't make physical attraction everything, but don't pretend like it's nothing because it does matter. And I just want to say this, okay? I've had, uh, you know, i got four kids. They're all over 16 now, so I've taken them all shopping at some point to help them buy a car. And, you know, a 16-year-old kid is almost like that. I want the cool car. I got a certain color. I got a certain body type. I'm like, I get it. Certain color of the car, certain body type of the car, that's fine. I want you to have a car you like. But let me tell you what's much more important than the body type and the color is what's under the hood, the engine. Because if you buy a really cool looking car, one of my kids did this, and a year later the engine craps out and it's going to cost more to fix the engine than the whole car costs, you're not going to be happy because you're going to be walking. But if you buy a car, then it's not the prettiest car in the universe, but it's kind of nice looking. It's okay. But it's got a great engine that'll last you for the next eight years, get you all into college. You're going to really love that car. Although it ain't the most beautiful car. You understand what I'm saying, guys? Character is king. Care more about what's in their heart and less about what's on the outside. You can still appreciate and like the outside stuff. Prioritize the internal stuff. Point five, there's a pattern for marriage. There's a pattern for marriage. Okay. Look at verse 24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, just think about that verse in the context of this chapter. This is the beginning of humanity. There was only one man and one woman at this point, Adam and Eve. There was no father and mother. But what was God saying? God was saying... This is supposed to be the normal pattern for all eternity. For thousands and thousands of years, every country, every race, doesn't matter. So it's to be one man, one woman for life. And the ideal way you get taught that is you get born into a family with one mommy and one daddy, and you grow up with them. And hopefully, if it's a godly family, the daddy's a leader. He's not an abusive leader, but he's not a passive leader. He's a godly, wise, gentle leader. And the wife, she's not a pushover, but she's not domineering either. She's a follower. She's a supporter of her husband. And you grow up in this context is getting to see what does a godly man say about God? What does a godly woman say about 
God. And so a little girl ought to be growing up saying, I want to marry somebody kind of like my daddy one day. And a godly little boy ought to be growing up saying, I want to marry somebody kind of like my mom one day. But here's the problem. For so many of us, we're not growing up in godly families. Even if your mom and dad stayed together, they weren't godly. They weren't good examples. For a lot of us, we didn't grow up with both parents in the home. Now listen, God is so powerful. His grace is so good that he can redeem the worst of situations. I love the story that Brian told this morning. But the lesbian couple, their son coming to Christ, them coming is powerful. God is so powerful. He can override the most messed up, dysfunctional, baggage-filled family in the world. But here's the point, guys. When you're getting ready to get married, and if you don't have some good models and mentors, marriage is going to be super hard. Marriage is hard if you came from the nicest, godliest, best family in the universe, and so did your spouse. Marriage will still be hard. I think... For everybody that gets married, second to Jesus Christ and salvation, the second best gift that God has ever given humanity is a good godly marriage. But the second hardest thing to do in life, second to following Jesus Christ, is doing marriage well. And when one or both of you comes from a non-Christian family or a broken home, it just makes it that much harder. And guys... This is one of the places where a ministry like Campus Outreach, like Camo, like your local church can really help you so much. Because you can find somebody older and wiser who's not perfect, but they got a decent marriage. And you can say, teach me what it looks like to have a godly marriage. Show me what it means to be a godly wife and mom. Model for me what it means like to be a good, godly daddy and husband. And you need that. And so let me give you another piece of really practical application here. Before you get married, do something called pre-engagement counseling. There's no verse in the Bible that says thou shalt do pre-engagement counseling. But I think this is a great way to apply biblical principles of seeking counsel, seeking wisdom, getting advice from other people. So the idea is this, and I'll just tell you a little bit more about me and my wife's story. I did grow up in not a perfect family, but a pretty good godly family. Had good models and mentors. And so when I was getting serious with Lena, I told my parents, I want y'all to get to know Lena. I want y'all to hang out with us together. And, and I'm, I can kind of be a little extreme in my personality. But what I said is to my parents, if at any point y'all say, I don't think y'all should get married, I'll break up with her, no questions asked. I look back on that, I'm like, wow, that's kind of extreme. But here's what happened. Listen, I'm not the most emotionally driven guy. I tend to be more logical, objective. But I was falling head over heels in love with this girl. I knew I was starting to not think straight. I was just like emotionally smitten with her. And so I didn't trust myself. I'm like, I'm this emotional guy that's in love with this girl. I'm thinking way too much about having sex with her. I don't trust my decision-making process very much. So mom and dad, I want y'all to hang out with her and y'all let me know, do y'all think she's as great as I think she is? My wife grew up in a very non-Christian, broken, dysfunctional, dumpster fire of a family. Part of what she did when she got to Samford, the woman that was discipling her, she, my wife almost basically adopted her and her husband as her spiritual parents. When she graduated, she lived with them for a year. And she kind of said to them, I want y'all to get to know Olin. I want y'all to ask 
Owen some hard questions because I don't have a dad to do that. Same kind of thing. If y'all don't think I should marry Owen, I won't do it. Y'all can think that's crazy, but I'm just telling you, I know a lot of people on the backside of marriage, they wish they'd have done pre-engagement counseling. I can tell you multiple stories. I'm not making this up. Of friends of mine that used to come to conferences just like this and sit just where you're sitting. Passionate for Jesus, singing all the songs, hands in the air. Fast forward a few years. Married, divorced. Pain, heartache. And I'm like, dude, what happened? Like, I'm serious. It's insane to me, but I've heard this story multiple times. Man, I knew when we were dating, when we were engaged, we should have never gotten married. And I'm like, why didn't you call the wedding off? You know, man, I'd already bought the ring. The invitations had already been sent. She'd already bought the dress. We already had the florist. We were already like $10,000 in the hole. It was just too hard at that point. It ain't as hard as a divorce. It wouldn't cost you as much as the divorce lawyers. See here, a lot of people, even non-Christians, will do pre-marriage counseling. And that's great. But pre-marriage counseling is after you have already put the ring on her finger. And guys, here's just a little side note for you. When you put that engagement ring, you might be the spiritual leader of y'all's relationship. Good for you, buddy. When you put that ring on her finger, guess who just got to be in charge? Her mom. Because her mom's been dreaming about this day for about 22 years. And so then if you change your mind, it is going to be a hard payment. And that's why I say, before you do pre-marriage counseling after engagement, before engagement, do pre-engagement counseling. Say, well, when and how and what? Just when, and actually, if you go to the bookstore, there's some books on this, some Bible studies that will help you. And I think they're really cheap. I think it's just called pre-engagement. Like we're already engaged. There's one called engagement. But here's the point. When you get to a point where you're like, I think I'm in love with you, and she thinks she's in love with me, and we think we're ready to get married, before you go ring shopping, get an older, godlier, wiser couple to sit down with you and to ask you some hard questions and get them to be brutally honest with you. Don't just find the sweet old couple that tells everybody that everything's wonderful. Get somebody that will tell you the hard truth. And it might be, hey... We think y'all should get married one day, but maybe you need to wait. Maybe you're a little immature and you should postpone it. Okay. Guys, the first three years of my marriage was very hard. We fought a lot. We even had some dark nights where we both said to each other, I don't believe in divorce, but if I did, I'd be out of here. Because you seem like a nutcase. You don't seem like the woman I married. And she'd say, you seem so mean. You don't seem like the guy I married. But we stayed in it. And the last 22 years have mostly been pretty good. Part of what gave us the strength and the courage to stay in the marriage, even when it was really hard and it wasn't fun at all, is four of the godliest people we knew, her mentors, my parents, had said, we think this is a good marriage. Y'all should do it. So we weren't just some stupid 21-year-olds that were hyper-emotional making this decision on a whim. And it gave us the confidence. Please do pre-engagement counseling. Point six. Point six is pleasure in marriage. God gives us a lot of good gifts and he wants us to delight in his gifts. Look at verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And this is pointing to, partially at least, their sex life. Guys, God invented sex. God placed nerve endings in certain parts of your body. 
God invented orgasm, passion, flirting, romance, the whole nine yards. There's a whole book in the Bible called Song of Songs. Go read it later. Might make you blush. It never talks about God. It never talks about babies. All it talks about is making babies. You understand? And John Piper, this great old Baptist preacher, said the Song of Solomon is basically a celebration of nudity within marriage. God invented sex. He likes sex. He's pro-sex. He's not anti-sex. He wants you to have, okay, great sex in marriage, if that's what he's called you to. But notice, sex comes after marriage. And we like to say, well, what exactly does that include? With that? Listen, we wish the Bible was unclear on this so we could kind of play around. The Bible's really clear. The Bible is a gigantic no to all forms of seeking and receiving sexual pleasure before you get married. So that's just like a heavy makeout session. That's like a massage that turns erotic. That's masturbation. That's pornography. That's just talking dirty to one another. Anything that you are seeking sexual pleasure or giving sexual pleasure before marriage, the Bible is a gigantic no. It's sinful. It's wrong. But as much as a gigantic no as the Bible is to sex before marriage, it's a gigantic yes afterwards. It's like after you're married, if the two of you are on the same page, it's a free-for-all. As long as the man and the woman and God are on the same page, it's like, hey, do whatever you want. It's fun. Enjoy one another. God is not anti-joy. God is not trying to ruin your life. God is trying to bless you. Guys, again, secular, non-Christian Studies will show the more you shack up before you get married, the greater your chances of divorce later. Again, you're not condemned. God can forgive all that and redeem all that. But don't play fast and loose with God. There is a standard of holiness and there are consequences to sin. When you have an orgasm, there are chemicals released in your brain and part of what they do is they try to bond you to that experience or that person. And that's why some of you have hooked up with somebody that deep down you know he's a bad dude. I mean, some of you probably, some of you girls, sadly, are probably, and some of you men as well, are in abusive relationships right now. Where your boyfriend or girlfriend, the way they talk to you is emotionally abusive. And there's even hitting and stuff. Why don't some of you leave? Because you've had so much sexual experience there already, you're bonded to that person. No, you need to leave. You need to get out now. You might need to call the police. But God designed sex to bond us, one man, one woman for life. And when it's done the right way, it's beautiful, it's powerful, it makes all the sense in the world. When it's done the wrong way, it brings so much pain and baggage. Now, seventh point. Again, Verse 25, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That's talking about sex. It's not talking about less than sex, but it is talking about more than sex. It's not just they were physically naked and unashamed. It's that they were emotionally, spiritually, mentally, psychologically, in every way. They were naked and unashamed. They had nothing to hide, nothing to fear, nothing to fake. They were comfortable in their own skin, literally. Like, here I am. Worse than all, what you see is what you get. And that's what marriage is supposed to be, a deep intimacy with one another. Deep intimacy. 
That's the ultimate purpose of marriage. To be fully seen, fully known, and yet still fully loved and fully accepted. And guys, that's what we want in the deepest part of our souls. I want somebody to know me. All my fears, all my dreams, all my hopes, all my baggage. All the good stuff, all the bad stuff, all the weird stuff. And still say, I love you. I like you. I'm all in on you. I'm committed. I'm not going anywhere. That's what we want. That's what marriage is designed to be. Okay? Now, this was before sin had entered the world. And that last word there, they were not ashamed. It's kind of foreshadowing. You know anything about the Bible? The very next verse, the very next chapter, Satan come in. He lies. He deceives. The people sin. And then there is shame. And they're covering themselves up. They're trying to hide it. Ruin this perfect marriage. Sin has not only ruined our relationship with God, it ruins our relationships with one another. There's one more verse I want us to look at. Flip to the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. This is the New Testament. Paul is writing to this one certain church. And he's giving them some very practical instructions about marriage. He's saying, husbands, you need to love your wives. Wives, you need to respect your husbands. And then at the very end of this kind of long teaching on marriage, he says this. And he quotes the verses we just read. Ephesians chapter 5, skip down to verse 31. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. You see what he's saying there? He's saying, guys, marriage is the mystery. Sex is beautiful. It's powerful. But really, marriage and sex and intimacy and all that stuff that goes on in marriage, really, it's the smaller story. And the greater story is the Lord Jesus Christ and the way that He loves His people. And marriage is meant to be this living picture, this living parable, that when you look at a good, healthy marriage between one man, one woman for life, it's supposed to say something about the way Jesus Christ loves and saves sinners. That the Lord Jesus Christ left His Father's throne above to come to planet Earth to seek a wife, to seek a people. And Jesus didn't have any shame. But we had a ton of shame. In a sense, we had enough shame for Him, for all of us, for the both of us. And Jesus Christ did share in our shame. He went to the cross. He was literally stripped naked publicly for all the world to see. And our shame was put upon him. The shame of all people that would ever trust in him. And God punished him on the cross, not for any sin of his, but for all the sin of his people, like me and you. That if we look at him and we say, you've loved me this much, you've pursued me this much, you know what I can do? I can start stripping off my self-protection. I can start stripping off my self-righteousness. I can start stripping off my self-protection and always trying to put my best foot forward and be somebody that I'm not. And then I can have salvation and intimacy with the Lord Jesus Christ. So two more things and we'll be done. Guys, go back to the very beginning when I said you've got to prioritize your relationship with God above your relationship with your date, with your spouse, because it's going to be hard. Dating will be hard. Marriage will be even harder. Because what you're going to see is they're a sinner and they hurt you. And with your sin, you hurt them. 
But if both of you are experiencing a lot of grace from Jesus, a lot of forgiveness from Jesus, a lot of mercy from Jesus, it'll make you more confident even when you blow it. So that you can be honest and not lie about it. You can confess your sins. And when they sin against you and it really hurts, you can be gracious, you can be tender, you can be merciful because that's how the Lord Jesus Christ has been with you. And that will be the foundation for a truly happy and healthy dating relationship and marriage. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would love you more. We would trust you more. We would not try to figure out this whole dating and marriage thing on our own. But we would have the humility and honesty to see what a mess we've already made of our lives. To repent. And to trust you by doing our best with your grace to obey these biblical principles in the way we date. Give us grace to do it. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We want to remind you to please leave a review for this podcast wherever you listen and to share this podcast with any friends or family that you think may be blessed by Olin's teaching. 